Welcome to MuggleCast, your Ford Anglia ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. And today we're discussing chapters three and four of Chamber of Secrets. But first, Micah had a unique Harry Potter experience that he wanted to tell us about. What were you up to, Micah, this week? Yeah, so actually last weekend, we were we were technically off, even though we uh, we released that holiday guide episode. Uh, on Saturday, I went up to Harry Potter, a Forbidden Forest experience in Westchester, New York. And I know it's currently in three, or no, two places here in the US and then two places abroad. And it was just a really cool experience overall. I think it's great for the family. And what you do is essentially you walk through a quote unquote forbidden forest experience uh, and you see all different types of things from the Harry Potter films and all the lighting and special effects that they did was really, really cool. Uh, a few highlights, you do come face to face with Aragog and there are spiders that drop from above as you're face to face with Aragog. Grop, his breath smells like vomit. He I'm not sure what else breath. to uh, <laughs> oh. talk about immersive. You can go up and take a, a picture with Grop. And what ends up happening is probably like every 15 to 20 seconds, he like breathes this nasty gas out of his mouth. Uh, so I thought that, you know, like it's those little touches, those little things yeah. that they add in there. Uh, and then they had the Fort Anglia, they had Hedwig, they have a really big stag Patronus when you come in that you can take a photo with. I just thought it was, it was very well done. I'm guessing it's Warner Brothers that puts it on. There's an area when you first come in, you can get food, you can get drinks. There's a shop, of course, so you can get merch. How long was this whole experience? How long did this take you? So it was probably just over an hour to go through the whole thing. And and they do kind of stagger you in stages um, so that you don't kind of bottleneck with other people. That's nice. I thought it was pretty smooth. I didn't expect it to take an hour. I just thought it would take like maybe 15 minutes. So I mean, you could rush through it. You could rush right. through it if you want to. But there are things where like you can cast a Patronus. You can duel Priorian Cantatum with somebody. You could smell Grop's breath. You can do that. Yeah. If you want to like hang out there for a little bit, nobody's pushing you along either. So I would say that uh, overall, it, it was definitely a fun experience. I think kids will really love it. Um, it's at night. So just the whole forest being lit up and you're hearing all these strange sounds as you go through. Maybe some of them are actually real as opposed to being manufactured. You don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I would say well done to the team that came up with that idea. And, and I'm sure it's going to continue to probably move around to different parts of the country. And you survived the Forbidden Forest, which I think is pretty impressive as well. So congratulations. Thank you. Maybe they should have had a shirt, shirt that says that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I survived the Forbidden Forest. <laughs> what, and all I got was this t-shirt. <laughs> they should make those. They really should. The only thing I'll say is I thought it was a little pricey. And I don't know if that's just because I went on a Saturday, but $75 a ticket is expensive to me, mm. especially if you're bringing a family of four. Yeah, that is a lot. I did see on the website because I was shocked. I didn't believe you when you said, can MuggleCast pay this much? I was like, wow, <laughs> Mike is trying to squeeze some money out of it. No, I'm kidding. No, I believed you. But I went on the website to look at the prices. And during the weekdays, it is cheaper, it looks like. It looks like it's half the cost. So that, that's what I figured. It was probably cheaper during the week. Uh, and you have to pay for parking, too. So they, they do give you a little discount on 
on that though on the website dude fly your broom there i mean come on why did you drive a car yeah why didn't why didn't you flew there come on oh damn it okay cool well thanks for uh, letting us know about that we'll see if it continues to expand it does seem like a neat experience before we jump into today's discussion, make sure you're following the show for free in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And if you love the show and want to see it thrive, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash MuggleCast or through the Apple Podcasts app. If the latter, just hit the subscribe button on the MuggleCast page right within the app. And speaking of podcast apps, special thank you to those who have shared that MuggleCast appeared in their Spotify wrapped this year. We got lots of tweets and Instagram tags with people saying, hey, you were one of my most listened to podcasts of the year. And that's always nice to see. The show was the top podcast for 1,455 of you. And then... We were in the top five for 4,600 of you. And in- 1,500, Andrew, you always got to, you know- Round up. Bump it up. Sounds better. Yeah. Bump it up. Just like a weekend ticket at the Forbidden Forest. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's doing it. (laughs) And we were in the top 10 for 6,700 of you. See, I rounded those last two. I did the first one. I don't know why. There you go. Anyway, it was it was fun to see those. And if you haven't shared yet, we would love if you tagged us on social media. And if you haven't noticed, we have been uh, retweeting and resharing those on our social media channels. So a lot of fun to check out. I posted it on my IG story, Andrew, and on LinkedIn. And on LinkedIn. Wow. Not not the MuggleCast LinkedIn, my LinkedIn. Okay. <laughs> MuggleCast has a LinkedIn? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Remember that? Remember when we tried that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I'm sorry, MuggleCast was not in my top five list. <laughs> I don't listen to the show. You don't listen to your own show? Wow. I mean, I'm editing it, so I listen there. Yeah. He listens more than the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Him and Chloe are probably tied for... Yeah. Well, sometimes you two listen. I get comments from you guys from time well, to time. Well, I listen on Overcast. I don't use Spotify for podcasts uh, yet. I listen on Apple. Oh, mm. there you go. So see some of us do listen to the podcast again. We all listen to the show secretly. <laughs> uh, play it our, to ourselves before bed. Sometimes to torture myself, I'll be walking Brooklyn at night. I'm I'm like, I'm going to listen to my own podcast to see how a listener experiences <laughs> our work and my editing work. And like, Talk about stressing yourself out. It always ends up going well, though. I'm like, oh, this sounds pretty good. <laughs> I tend to listen on the train so that when I actually say choo-choo, it... You know, it has relevance. (laughs) Bad joke. Sorry. This episode is feeling a little unhinged, and I think it's because it's the end of the year. (laughs) I'm here for it. Let's get to chapter by chapter. Chamber of Secrets, chapter three, The Burrow. And as always, we will begin with our seven word summary. Weasley's house features new magic and gnomes <laughs> i like it <laughs> we're actually i'm getting really excited because our album art depicts the ford anglia riding towards hogwarts and we're getting towards that oh, chapter here in chamber secrets so i'm very excited for that episode we have to do a special celebration We'll bring some of our wooden cars. We'll like <laughs> get some hot cocoa and we'll just celebrate our titular episode or like uh, the album art represented episode next week, I think. 
So anyway, this is not that Ford Anglia chapter, but the Ford Anglia is involved in this chapter because Ron and his brother show up with the car to break Harry out of his Dursley prison cell. And now they do this at night. Ron says flying this car doesn't violate any magical rules since they didn't enchant it themselves and it's their father's. This I don't I don't know if I fully buy this though because this also leaves out the fact that they can be seen by muggles. Yeah. yeah. It's very possible as Molly notes later. Huge risk. It was cloudy, Ron says, but do we think they are checking the forecast and they're like, "Oh, it's cloudy. It's a good day to break out Harry." <laughs> no. It's a flimsy excuse, but I think we also see later in the chapter where that flimsy excuse gained its origins um because we know we find out who wrote the laws to create this particular <laughs> loophole that would allow a car to be enchanted to fly in the first place. Yeah. There is so much world building in these in these two chapters. Yeah. Like it's so packaged in a way where you don't realize how much info you're getting. But I'm blown away covering these two chapters about all the work that's being done to set up not just this book, but vital pieces of info like the government, how it works, what Mr. Weasley does. There's name drops we'll get to. You know, all this stuff is just really smooth for early book two. I think not only do you get where these magical laws come from, but you also, I think, get a sense for where Fred and George get a little bit of their edge when they do things <laughs> from Arthur specifically. I think, you know, that doesn't always come across as much in the movies, but I feel like in the books, you get a sense for just how daring Mr. Weasley is at times because of the job that he has. That's a great point. Yeah. This chapter really, I think, reminded me that Fred and George in particular are their father's sons, clearly. Yeah. And we'll, I know there are some examples of that we'll get to here in a minute, but it is nice to Eric's point about the world building and establishing these characters and their place in it. You know, Chamber of Secrets, like I said a couple weeks ago, is the book that I've probably revisited the least in the series. So it's always such a pleasant surprise to get that those nuggets, you know, that we don't necessarily see in the later books or even in the movies. Yeah. And to your point about the movies, I mean, I just I vividly have every scene of those movies in my head at this point. So I don't think of like what we're about to talk about. Fred and George jumping out of the car to go and get Hedwig and and or get Harry's school supplies because um, they're just sitting in the car the whole time in the movie. And we were just talking about Fred and George and how they're like Arthur Fred and George know how to do the muggle trick, as they call it, of manually opening a lock without using magic. And they also thought to pull the bars off of Harry's window with the car. And this just reminded me that they really are jack-of-all-trade types. I really appreciate that they have a respect for muggle tricks instead of just relying on magic. Because as Arthur says later in this chapter... Magic is so much easier. I don't know how muggles get by with some of these quote unquote old school moves that they do. Fred and George say in this scene, we feel muggle skills are worth learning, even if they are a bit slow. I love this trait. I mean, they, yeah. they just. Do you think that comes from their father, though? The influence of their father? Has to be a little bit. 
I think so. You've seen wizarding families be raised without any nod to the muggles, uh, without any at all consideration. Like they probably do everything by magic. Other families. The Weasleys are very much not that way. I think because they've been surrounded by muggle artifacts and because they live in like very near a muggle village named Ottery St. Catchpole, uh, the Weasleys would have grown up with a lot of, um, you know, immersion in some muggle stuff. And with their dad's disposition being like, hey, muggle stuff is okay. It's actually really neat. Um, I think that that really rubs off on the twins, especially. And in general, their chaotic energy is just really great on a good day. But we get to see it being used for Harry when they break him out. That's just like the coolest thing is like it's the first time your best friend's older brothers are like weaponized in this way to help you out. And we see that the Weasley twins do that throughout the books. They really come in uh, clutch. That's a car joke. <laughs> um. I, I was right there with you. I picked up on what you were doing there. Thank you. Thank you. But I, I wonder, too, you know, when it comes to Fred and George learning how to pick locks, for example, who did they learn it from? Did Arthur teach them? Mundungus. <laughs> Mundungus. <laughs> they, they came to take your child to work day and uh, Arthur had Mundungus sitting in his office and he's like, kids, let me show you a few tricks. <laughs> yeah. Well, is this just a movieism or is it mentioned in the book that Arthur's got this shed that has a bunch of muggle items in it, it's too? In the, uh, it's in the it's book. a deleted scene, I think. Right? Oh, the, you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Not but, in Chamber of Secrets, though. I think it's a later film where Ron is in the shed with Arthur. Maybe it's Half Blood Prince. I'm just thinking if Arthur is spending so much time interacting with Muggle artifacts, he's going to do this at home a little bit too. Clearly, he has a passion for it. I can see Fred and George coming over. Hey, Dad, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm trying to figure out this thing with like a little U shape that goes into a thing with a spinny wheel. And it's like a lock. And they're, they they like kind of play around with cracking the lock. So I, I could see them definitely picking up this interest from from Arthur because of all the Muggle artifacts he's dealing with well another example of that is doesn't ron say to harry i've seen those things that muggles think are gnomes like tiny little santa clauses so <laughs> there's there's knowledge like the weasleys have a passing knowledge about all things muggle in general and i think it that's directly can be tied to arthur weasley i'm actually also curious too about vernon's sleeping patterns because he wakes up for Hedwig, but doesn't wake up when bars get ripped off of a window, probably, you know, in the next room over. So listen, he probably has sleep apnea and is probably like not easily distracted or, or, or maybe Petunia snores. And that's about as loud as, you know, he's used to from her. So he's tuned it out. I don't know. Or sometimes it takes a couple of things. Okay. It could take a couple of things. I have to sleep with a fan on. I need background noise. So that can be oh, a factor I'm the too. Same way. Yeah. 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 I'm just wondering, does he have magical anxiety? So the first time he even hears an owl screech, he's up and running to Harry's room. Maybe. So anyway, it is a good trait for the twins. By the way, we did do a Fred and George episode back in April 2021. That was episode 508. So if you want to hear us talk more about the Weasley twins specifically, do check out that episode. So Harry does forget to grab Hedwig on his way out the window. This week's Quizzitch question. <laughs> Answer. <laughs> and that that does trigger that shriek we were just talking about. And Vernon wakes up and he gets to the door, which then crashes open. 
and he stands there in the frame of the door. I thought this was an interesting parallel because just one book earlier, Hagrid knocks down the door. That door also crashes before smashing down. And what's kind of interesting here, I don't know if we can read too much into it, other than just appreciating the parallel, Hagrid's there to bail him out in book one, crashing down the door. Vernon's crashing down the door in book two to keep him in place. Yeah, Mm, I think that's a really interesting parallel that you can draw between the first two books, Um, especially since we're seeing Vernon in both situations, right? It'd be one thing if Vernon wasn't part of both of these situations, but the fact that he is, and that in both cases, his goal is to keep Harry in place, but the method of trying to do so is like swapped. I think it's really interesting. This is also like realizing book two opens with from Vernon's perspective again, just like book one does. We are finding very weird connections with Vernon Dursley here. I know. Is he the main character? Like, have we been reading these books wrong the whole time? Vernon Dursley in the Chamber of Drills. Oh, (laughs) man. Him and Hagrid are really long lost brothers. Well, with the door crashing down, I wonder if uh, Fred and George's lock picking didn't work, so they just lifted the hinges out of the... Because <laughs> you know you uh, can do that with a flathead screwdriver to, and then the door. Yeah. Yep. Uh, they might have just done that when Harry wasn't looking. <laughs> so maybe they're not that good at picking locks. Possible. <laughs> One of the things that I picked up on about Hedwig when they do all finally make their way into the car and Harry finally lets her out to fly is that J.K. Rowling notes that she flies like a ghost alongside the car. And this made me think about Deathly Hallows when she comes in alongside another flying vehicle, which would be Harry and Hagrid on the motorbike, Mm -hmm. and takes the uh, killing curse for Harry. Yeah. this When I saw you pointed this out in the doc, Micah, I was like, oh, my heart. (laughs) Yeah. It's too much. So after some talk about Dobby and who might own him, they arrive at the borough because, of course, Harry's filling Fred and George and Ron in on the whole Dobby situation. They they arrive at the borough and their plan to arrive quietly and without being spotted by Molly eh, doesn't work out. Molly's outside. The sun has started to rise and Molly is not happy about it, but she is very happy to see Harry. Yeah. And all this talk about Dobby, when we were earlier on in the show talking about how there are things about this book that we don't remember, I never remembered the fact that this early on in the books that they were suspecting that Dobby was from the Malfoys. (laughs) Right. So I actually, I find it very interesting that, you know, they deduce that Dobby could in fact belong to the Malfoys. However, Fred and George, they believe it more likely that Dobby was sent to Harry as a prank. And Harry's knowledge of wizarding families is also pretty limited at this point. So I don't know that there would be too many other options besides the Malfoys that Harry could even think of. Yeah. No, it's funny that Harry's right on the money from day one. He just doesn't know it. Um, And the reasons are wrong. You know, Dobby is the Malfoys uh, house elf. But unlike Draco sending Dobby as a joke, as a prank, it's because Dobby was telling the truth. But the two interesting things about Dobby belonging to the Malfoys regarding these two chapters is that for Fred and George, they're not 100% sure 
that the Malfoys would have a house elf, but they are rich. The thing is, they say they usually belong in like large estates. Well, in the next chapter, when Lucius uh, is talking with Borgen, he actually says, I expect to see you by the manor tomorrow. Uh, so that actually confirms for readers, if they're eagle-eyed, that the Malfoys do actually live in a big house, which I think is the last piece of the puzzle to really be like, okay, they definitely have a house elf. And yeah. I think we're led in that direction because I believe Harry thinks to himself or maybe says out loud, perhaps in this chapter, I can totally see the Malfoys living in a manor. That checks out. Uh-huh. And to your point, Eric, even though house elves have got powerful magic of their own, like the Weasley twins say, it's noted that they only usually use it without their master's permission. Or sorry, they can't usually use it without their master's permission. But Dobby is actually acting of his own free will, which makes this all very interesting. Yeah. Well, we deal with that with Creature, with Harry telling Creature explicitly not to do stuff in order to get him to not do stuff. But Harry really wrestles with this whole concept much more in, I think, book six and and Sirius in book five. The thing that I thought was really interesting about this, I could 100% see Draco sending the family house elf to do something like this. We've seen other examples of Draco trying to play sneaky tricks to get Harry in trouble, even look at book one with the midnight duel and the whole fake out that he orchestrated around that to try and get Harry into trouble. I could totally see Draco doing something like this. But what I love about it is that this book is full of misdirection. I was reminded of that when reading these two chapters. And I've got a couple of notes about that for the next chapter that we'll get into. But I love the potential misdirect here where Harry is set up to think, okay, maybe it is a prank. And oh, if he was to venture down that you know, train of thought a little further, he would come to the conclusion that, oh, yeah, it's probably Draco. In reality, there's a nugget of truth there, right? Dobby does come from the Malfoys, but his intentions are completely different than what, you know, Harry and a first time reader might think when they're seeing this. So I just love the way this book sets up multiple possibilities for who um, the instigators are in the story. Um, And I I just didn't remember that again, speaking to, you know, how much of this book I had forgotten, and realizing how well and how strategically all of these misdirects are set up early in the book. It's shocking, actually. I'm glad you brought that up because I had a similar crackpot theory And I was almost too embarrassed to pitch it because I just thought y'all would laugh me out of our recording studio. As we often do. (laughs) Every time Andrew Andrew brings up one of his damned crackpot theories. (laughs) I don't think it would be the craziest theory that Lucius or Draco did drop some loud hints in the manner that Harry shouldn't return to school as a way of getting Harry out of there because they drop the loud hints, Dobby picks him up, and then Dobby's saying, oh, I got to go and look out for Harry Potter. I've heard good things about him. The one reason why I'm embarrassed to share this theory is because they wouldn't want Dobby to leave the house or betray them because that would be a betrayal to leave the house and go tell Harry. But on the other hand, that could be reflective of how badly they wanted to get Harry out of the school for a while. Or maybe this ties into but, Laura's point. 
Mm-hmm. Does does Dobby have like track record? Like, does he have a rap sheet of betraying the Malfoys? So he he would be prone to doing this type of thing. That could lend to your theory, Andrew. Yeah, yeah. Especially because they're always reminding him to do extra punishments. They just right. assume like they've lost something. Probably happened that they could have lost total trust of Dobby. Um, so I could see this being intentional. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a fun theory. One of the things that came to mind, Laura, when you were talking just before and and kind of connecting the threads to Half-Blood Prince, Dobby is used as kind of this envoy to stop Harry from going back to Hogwarts. And then in Half-Blood Prince, Dumbledore uses Harry as an envoy to bring Slughorn to Hogwarts. Oh, that's very cool. That's a great connection. Okay, so let's talk about the burrow now because they have arrived and the Dobby issues aside, Harry is very excited to be at the burrow. But I want to start this part of the conversation with a what if. So Molly says she was worried about Harry at the Dursley's house as well. And she and Arthur were actually considering going to the Dursley's to get Harry. Or at least check in on him. You know, at least somebody cares. You know, I'm just (laughs) going to throw this out here. Where's Dumbledore? (laughs) The Weasleys care about him. Dumbledore is just like sitting with his feet up in his office, stroking Fox. Hagrid's been trying to reach Harry and and he has an inside line to Dumbledore. He could have been like, something's going on, you know, and really drawing attention to it. And yet Dumbledore knows that. Harry has moved over to the borough because he gets his Hogwarts letter at the borough. What's well, interesting. He's keeping tabs. Yeah. T- well, 10 days later, you know, so I wonder if uh, Arthur and Molly have sent a letter explaining it or something. And and what interests me is Dumbledore doesn't then show up and is like, no, Harry has to go back because that will be way too much. Like, yeah. I think at this point, Dumbledore thinks that maybe the protection did as much as it's going to do, or maybe there's been some kind of communication between the Dursleys and Dumbledore cleaning up the mess a little bit but there needs to be some kind of intervention here because that was just totally absurd so what would have happened if molly and arthur arrived at privet drive to check in on harry molly and arthur are not as clean cut as vernon and petunia are and clearly arthur is uh, very fascinated by muggles so i think this would have been a very upsetting situation for the dursleys yeah to see these two scrappy people show up yeah i mean we see what happens when magic enters their home we've seen it in the first book now we've seen it in the second book and they kind of lose it so i would imagine for molly her reaction to the conditions that harry is living in she'd probably lose it a little bit yeah on petunia in particular arthur though I'm not so sure. We do see him come to Privet Drive in Goblet of Fire, I believe it is, with the Weasley twins when they come to get Harry. So I would anticipate him reacting much the same way. So he'd be very, like you said, Andrew, very fascinated by being in a muggle home. He'd probably go around and touch a lot of things and right. that would really like unnerve Petunia and Vernon and... I think they would generally be uncomfortable, the Dursleys. I'm going to go ahead and say they probably would be leaving without Harry. I don't think that they would have the kind of conviction that Ron and their their children have to get Harry out. I think that if they were expecting a civil conversation, uh, they would not receive it in the Dursleys. 
Um, and I think they would ultimately be very shocked and then they would write to Dumbledore and Dumbledore would sort it out. But I don't think that Arthur and Molly showing up at Privet Drive would have yielded Harry leaving with them calmly. I don't think that would. Really? Yeah, I don't think that would have oh, worked yeah. that way. And honestly, you guys are talking about them going through the house. I don't picture Molly and Arthur getting past the front step. Like, they're going to stay at the doorway. The, Vernon is not inviting them in. Yeah, they are certainly capable of taking the Dursleys, no problem. <laughs> they can make them regret the day they were born if they wanted to, but... <laughs> The well, Weasleys are not that's that part of it. Though. Yeah, they're not that type of people, though. They want to believe the best in everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But couldn't we see Arthur in particular, given his government connections, spinning up some tale to make the Dursleys nervous about the prospect of not letting Harry leave because they don't know much of you know wizarding law and what is required and what the consequences could be for them and i could see arthur stretching the truth to make them nervous i also think they would have at this point in the series been a little bit disarmed by arthur in particular because he would be very jovial with them and super polite and interested in them as muggles they're experience from the previous book was with someone from the wizarding world who was much more abrupt shall we say yeah i think the weasleys yeah the weasleys might have disarmed them a little bit easier and i think arthur could have slipped in some kind of convincing argument about consequences for the dursleys not letting harry leave i was almost thinking as if he's the government official that's come to pick Harry up after Harry used magic yeah. and they're taking him away to some sort of, uh, you know, delinquent yeah. holding yeah, They're cell. taking him to I, I don't know. That would be the way that it, that it would work the most. Speaking of that, though, let's not forget the Weasleys can use magic. Harry can't. So no, if they use, if magic is used at Privet Drive, Harry's going to get the blame for it. You don't think Arthur's no, because that's exactly what happens with Do- ties. With- no, because that's what happens with Dobby, right? Somebody else. But used- Dobby's not a wizard, right? But the four privet drive is not a wizarding household, so any magic that's used would be blamed on Harry, according to. But I, I think guess. Arthur could go up a floor in the ministry and you know explain the situation. So I think that would be well. I will say about them disarming the Dursleys too. Final point here: uh, Molly actually met the Dursleys at the end of last term. Uh, mm-hmm. And she walked up to them very nice, very pleasantly saying, oh, you must be Harry's parents or guardians or whatever she says, his family. And Vernon took one look at her. And from that look, he's later like, oh, yeah, that don't be woman. But he's like, in a manner of speaking, they do not want to be associated to Harry. They don't want anyone knowing they have Harry for somebody to come up to their door and ask for Harry. They would just not give them the time of day. Uh, so, again, I, I still don't see them being successful in getting Harry out. I think the only thing that could do it was the element of surprise and what we got. Andrew just wanted a tussle on the living room floor between Vernon and Arthur, much like we get in the next book or chapter. (laughs) Would another door have been smashed down? That's all I wanted to know. Yeah. (laughs) Well, they do come through the fireplace in a couple of books and that messes up the living room. So yeah, I just thought it was a fun question to ask since Molly said she was considering it herself and it would definitely have been pretty tense. So anyway, back at the borough, Harry is very impressed by this wizarding home. It's wonderful. He said, 
happily thinking of Privet Drive. The house is described as brimming with all kinds of active magic. Even the most mundane thing, like the denoming the garden, is of interest to Harry. He's just impressed by all this magic swarming around the house. And the denoming, actually, I wanted to bring up because this is a book-only scene. And I love that our friend Andy a few weeks ago mentioned that these book-only scenes are really nice because they feel pure and untouched. Couldn't you denome the garden in one of the video games? I think you could. I also thought it was interesting that there is a denoming scene in the book where Herbology will play a big role later on. Ah, yeah. Good catch. Was that purposeful or just a coincidence? It has to be purposeful, right? Because wizarding, gardening type stuff, it seems like a pretty solid link. Yeah. Yeah. And also just an added bonus for the world building that's being done in this chapter. It gives color to where the Weasleys live, and it provides such a contrast to what Harry has experienced living at Privet Drive. So I, I think it checks a lot of boxes. And speaking of the house, at the end of the chapter, Ron is downplaying the house, but Harry replies, this is the best house I've ever been in. Why does Harry love this house so much? It speaks to everything the Dursleys are not. But I think that it really is a way of embracing the magic um, because like Harry's impression is that several of the floors are held up by magic. They literally would not. <laughs> Gravity would tear it down because it's so danged oblong. But because they're magical, it stays up and it works. And I think Harry has been missing out on all of this magic, on all this magical stuff uh, for the entire summer, if not his entire life. And yeah. that's why he just warms to it so much. Yeah. It's also an example of his roots, right? And the experience he would have had growing up in a wizarding family. This is his first time getting to see that. Agreed. Yeah, it's it's a home. It's warm. It you know Molly is there and it, there's a family and he gets to see how a normal wizarding family functions and all of kind of the bells and whistles that go along with it. And he is loved there, which cannot be said. Yeah. Our friend uh, Michelle in the Discord said, in addition to Andrew saying he's loved there, said it is clearly full of love. The house is full of love. Right. And that's a huge difference. I think it's interesting to compare and contrast Harry's view of the borough to Ron's view of his own home. And I think it's only natural to have the initial reaction Ron does because a lot of his insecurity, as we know, comes from the fact that he believes to be himself to be poor. And we could argue, well, while he might be poor financially, he's very wealthy when it comes to family and love and all the things that we just talked about. Um, because after Harry says this is the best house he's ever been in, Ron's ears go pink. And so. I've wondered, you know, were we ever afraid of showing our home off to our friends growing up? You know, because it does kind of give a peek behind the curtain of how you live. And class consciousness. Um, Um, Yeah. If you have a friend who has really large, you know, front lawn or a house versus friends that you have with smaller homes, like it's, it's all of that. So have I been nervous about it? Maybe not, but I think as a child, you're definitely aware that that you know certain people that you may know through school live a bit differently than you. Yeah, mm-hmm. actually, that unlocks like a core memory for me. Um, when we, when I was like 
I don't know, 11, 12, and we first moved to Georgia, um, we were renting the house that we lived in. And I remember I was talking to a boy I liked at school one day in like sixth or seventh grade. And we were talking about someone who we didn't like, like mutually, we did not like this person. Um, But then he added in, oh, yeah, and by the way, her parents rent. And that was the (laughs) first experience I ever had with classism in that way. Obviously, there are much deeper and more traumatizing examples that people have. But I remember the feeling of, oh, my God, is it bad to rent? (laughs) You is know, that wrong? <laughs> right. And that's so funny it, because like, you know, who taught that kid about renting being bad? Their parents were yep. like, oh, and did you hear as a kid, too, that people who rent don't pay school taxes or property property taxes, which go to funding the school? Ooh. Because my dad totally said that at some point uh, about people who wow. rent. Yeah, Yikes. I know. Right. And it's like, how what kind of a grievance is that? <laughs> Like, yeah. and also I've rented the 14 years I've been in Chicago. So, <laughs> Right. That's the other thing. We all grow up and graduate college and then go and rent anyway. Yeah. 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 It's funny exactly. how things changed. In talking about the borough, though, it, it did make me think about Malfoy Manor because we just mentioned it not that long ago. And I don't think Harry would be if we were talking about Harry going to visit. Draco, let's say, at this point in the series, we know he goes to the manor later on, but I don't think he would be impressed by Malfoy Manor. And I think when we all do see it, it is very like sterile. There's no warmth to it the way that yeah. there is with the borough. Yeah, the peacocks can only do so much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Lucius and his peacocks. And again, that that's another comparison we can draw between the or between the Dursleys and the Malfoys, right? We talked a little bit about there being some shocking similarities between these two families. Um, so I think that's another uh, point in the column of us needing to have that discussion at some point. Yeah. And in terms of <laughs> one of Micah's questions about Ron not being impressed by his own home. I think that's also just what happens when you grow up living in a place for so long, any place, even Draco. I don't know if he would be like blown away by his own manner at this point. Cause that's just, he just knows no other way. Like that's just how he lives, lives. Harry on the other hand goes from this awful home to a really magical and loved and lived in one. So you can see why Harry and Ron's feelings about the borough are so different at this time. Looking at some odds and ends, when Ron arrives at the beginning of this chapter to bail out Harry, he of the Dursley Dungeon, by the way, thank you, must be a Weasley for that phrase, <laughs> Dursley Dungeon. Oh, love it. Ron tells Harry he's asked him to stay at the burrow 12 times. Oh, so there's a number 12. Wow. Good catch. It's also noted that Celestina Warbeck is on the radio at the burrow. And I thought this was a nice tie in to Wizarding World Diagon Alley in Orlando because Selena, Celestina Warbeck offers live performances there. And you also wanted to call something out, Micah. Yeah, we get a uh, Mundungus Fletcher mention. Arthur, when he comes back uh, from work, says that uh, Mundungus tried to hex him when his back was turned. So as early as chapter three of Chamber of Secrets were introduced to Dung, kind of. I just had a quick odds and ends. At the end of this chapter, when uh, Harry uh, goes up to Ron's bedroom, he notices in addition to all the Chudley Cannons uh, posters and (laughs) bed (laughs) blanket and everything, um, there are also these comic books, which for some reason, I always forget their thing because we've never seen them adapted into anything. 
So I think it's time for us to max that. I want to see an adaptation of Martin Miggs' The Mad Muggle, a comic series about some muggle that apparently is produced for wizards' consumption, so it would contain all the trappings of what wizards think muggles are like. Uh, and especially if this muggle is mad, meaning crazy. Uh, yeah, maybe an animated series, maybe a little shorts, like Forky asked a question, like five minutes of <laughs> some random exploits. But I just think that would be very humorous. Reminds me of that book that uh, Mina Lima did artwork for, When Muggles Attack. That's right. <laughs> you, I have that in my home. Eric, mm-hmm. in mentioning Ron's room, though, you also made me think about the ghoul in the attic who we know comes into play a little bit later on in the series, he uh, he does his best Ron impersonation. Yes. Yeah, and but other than that, we don't really know that guy's deal. Why is he there? Where does he come from? What is his he's story? Part, he's like Peeves. Yeah. Well, he's just part of the fabric. He just yeah. came with the house. He came with the house. <laughs> Except he got blown up in uh, which movie was it? When Bellatrix like blows up the burrow. Oh, that was right. six, right? For I don't know why they did that. Anyway, yeah. that was a terrible ad- addition. Yeah, that was a off debated scene david yates so now it's time for chapter four of chamber of secrets at flourish and blots and we'll start with the seven word summary lucius takes Ginny's father in a fight okay i like the seven word summary because this is something i actually forgot about and well, we'll get to it at the end of the chapter. Yeah. So continuing off of chapter three, Harry is blown away by life at the burrow and how it's brimming with magic. And this kind of carries into this chapter because we get more colorful details about Diagon Alley. Again, just packed with magic. And Harry's excited to be back at Diagon Alley. But of course, to get there, he runs into some issues. It's not so easy, not as easy as the Weasleys would have hoped. It's time to go shopping for some school supplies and to meet celebrity author Gilderoy Lockhart. And to get there, the Weasleys give Harry a crash course on using flu powder. They dump a lot of info on him very quickly (laughs) and rush him into it. And it's no wonder he doesn't state his desired location clearly. He's feeling the pressure to use this brand new to him mode of magical transportation did the weasleys give their other kids such a fast lesson on flu powder this feels so unfair i know it seems like it's fred who's the one to blame here because fred says to molly oh he'll be fine don't worry about it and maybe fred's thinking he's already a good quidditch player he's clearly a great magician he'll be fine oh yeah diagonally and then it puts him in borgen and burks do we blame the weasleys here couldn't somebody have gone with him, like side along apparition? Right. That's what I was wondering. Maybe their fireplace isn't big enough because <laughs> they're poor. We also see in Deathly Hallows um, when the trio is escaping the ministry that they all kind of jump into the fireplace together. I'm trying to remember if this was a movieism that they kind of went in order instead of all being in there together at the same time. But I wonder if that would have been a possibility here too. like Harry throw the flu powder in Harry steps in, goes and then somebody goes, you know, right after him. Somebody's basically on his coattails. <laughs> that would be helpful. 
Yeah. Well, how does Ginny go? Does Ginny go with Molly? Do we see that? Through the flu powder? Yeah. I think she probably. Yeah. I'm just, I'm kind of wondering, because what this all gets to, I think, is the fact that clearly, despite how good Harry is at things in the wizarding world and how things can come naturally to him, like Quidditch and flying, there are things that he still has to learn and is not good at. Well, so yeah, to be fair, he never traveled by magic before the, you know, squeezing behind the navel feeling that he gets and the, the like whole experience of like cold hands slapping him in the face. He's just not used to this. Whereas if you're a wizard, like they didn't, they even asked Harry, how did you get to Diagon Alley last year? Um, because they always travel by this method, it seems. I use the good old-fashioned muggle underground system. Oh, were there escapators? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I just like, and if you read these paragraphs, they're all heaping rules on him yeah. very quickly. It's just very unfair. I do think it's an elegant uh, thing they did for the movie where they have him just say, diagonally, which kind of, does and doesn't make sense, but it's much better than like he coughs in smoke and flames. But yeah, if this were me trying it for the first time, I'm sure I wouldn't know when to breathe and when to shout. Like it's just such a common like, yeah, they didn't they could have taken their time with Harry and they didn't. And thank you to our friend Hufflepuff Teach, the inventor of the phrase quizage for pointing out this is another parallel to the first book where the Weasley show Harry a way to enter the magical world just like with the platform oh, oh I love it oh my god yeah but that goes a lot better <laughs> yeah that one's simpler though run at wall the funny thing is when Harry tries to do that in this book it goes awry too oh yeah so he has a couple of problems re-entering the wizarding world in this book maybe it's Dobby maybe Dobby is a to blame, we just don't learn about it. <laughs> oh, oh, you're saying for diet the flu powder? Yeah, that's funny. The flu oh, powder. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. <laughs> Dobby just like quickly slaps his jaw so he like <laughs> stutters. So Harry does arrive at Borgen and Burks and quickly dives into a large black cabinet. Hello, vanishing cabinet. And we were talking just an episode or two ago about how there are many parallels between Chamber of Secrets and Half-Blood Prince. And we were also talking about how pieces of Half-Blood Prince are a part of Chamber of Secrets because things that happened in HBP were going to happen in Chamber of Secrets. So there's just kind of like hints of of the structure. Is this a significant one? And in other words, could oh, yeah. Vanishing Cabinets have played a bigger role in Chamber of Secrets at one point? I'm not sure about that. Maybe? Yeah, go on, Micah. Oh, no, I was just going to say, it's not just the vanishing cabinet. There are a lot of little trinkets that either Harry comes across or Draco comes across in this chapter that play a much bigger role in Half-Blood Prince, including the opal necklace and the hand of glory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, uh, Voldemort himself worked at this store where Harry is mm. unceremoniously thrown into. And uh, we find out about that, at least one significant memory in Half-Blood Prince. Um, so this this is taking you right into Voldemort's personal backstory. Good call. So that's really neat. And that is a similarity between this and book six. But Harry gets there right in time to get this hugely important bit of information uh, coming from the Malfoys. 
yeah, Lucius is selling some dark potions to Borgen since the ministry is currently conducting raids and he <laughs> wants to uh, hide it all. Get it out of here. I, I don't want to get in trouble. Lucius, it is interesting and good to see that he himself is not safe from these raids. He's under pressure as well. Yeah, you know, on the one hand, uh, after they leave the shop, Borgen says, oh, the rumor is you haven't sold me half of what's in your manor, Mr. Malfoy. Um, but it's nice to see Lucius is scared when they tell um, or Harry's telling the Harry's telling his friends about it. And Arthur's listening in and he's like, oh, great. <laughs> he's worried. That's wonderful. I hate that guy. Um, but my big question was, we always tend to look at or at least I do. Um, Lucius's decision to give the diary um, in this book, to give it away, to give it to Ginny um, as this totally selfish, uh, we know that's how Voldemort looks at it, attempt to discredit his nemesis, uh, Arthur Weasley. But I'm wondering if it's not actually part of this same uh, fear that Lucius has about being raided and about being caught with this artifact that Voldemort himself gave him that causes Lucius to give the diary away this year and particularly today. I had never made that connection before. It is interesting that you bring that up because we had talked in previous episodes about how long was Lucius planning to do this and was the impetus that he was trying to assist the Dark Lord in coming back or was the impetus more Yo, Arthur Weasley's office is conducting some pretty serious raids, um, you know, based on the way wizarding culture works now. I am no longer completely immune to this kind of thing. And oh, what better way to discredit Arthur Weasley than to give a dark artifact to his daughter? Right. Yeah. And I mean, Lucius assumes he doesn't know Ginny for from Adam, but he totally assumes that she would embrace the diary, which is exactly what she does. Um, yeah. You know, and and it's it's such a perfect plan that it makes me wonder what did Dobby overhear exactly? Was Ginny always the target of this or because, I mean, the more I think about it, the more Dobby should have just gone and warned the Weasleys, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, instead of warning Harry about terrible things happening at Hogwarts, he should have gone and warned the entire Weasley family that mm -hmm. uh, Lucius didn't want to get audited. Excellent points. Excellent points. So Lucius has brought Draco in tow and Lucius reminds his son that you know, Draco's smack talking Harry. And uh, Lucius reminds his son that it is not prudent to appear less than fond of Harry, since most people celebrate his victory over Voldemort. And this little piece of advice doesn't seem to stick with Draco, of course. But it is surprising to hear Lucius say this. Anybody else feel that way? I'm like, wow, he's actually <sighs> like, hey, quiet down about Harry. Yeah. Think of where he is, though. Yeah, I think it's strategic. I think you'll see this dynamic with a lot of families. There are certain things and certain opinions that they feel safe having within the confines of their own home. But they understand that when they're out in the world and out in society, they can't openly be sharing those views because society is no longer as a whole aligned with those particular ideologies. So I think this is strategic from a social standpoint. Um, I think Lucius is prepared to go back to Voldemort the second that 
it's apparent that he's back and he doesn't want his son, you know, himself to do anything publicly that might implicate them in something like that were it to happen. Yeah, right. he's, he's very much somebody who I don't think would go against whatever the mainstream thought process is. And right now, Harry is the hot commodity. So I feel like that's why he's telling his son. And it's very possible that he could have given Draco guidance in the first book to try and befriend Harry because the truth was people didn't know what Harry was going to become. I guess what I'm trying to say is they didn't know, was he going to go to the dark side because he was able to defeat Voldemort? I think a natural thought there would be, well, perhaps he is a dark wizard himself and maybe he's the next coming of Voldemort. Mm -hmm. And so from a Malfoy standpoint, you totally want to be on on his side. True. Um, But then there's also the whole Harry is Dumbledore's pet. So I don't know you know, what kind of Lucius's thought process is as we head into the second book here. But but clearly he doesn't want anything, doesn't want Draco to do anything that's going to draw attention to him in a negative light. Yeah. He's teaching his son diplomacy here or pragmatism. Yeah. That's a great way of yeah. putting it. Yeah. 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 But it also goes back to the Fred and George's uh, characterization of what Lucius did after the first war, um, where he claimed it was all mind control or this that the other thing like lucius didn't get to where he is today by being flippant about complaining about harry potter and the funny thing is that when draco's complaining about harry um <laughs> lucius kind of very coldly is just like you've told me this at least 12 times already <laughs> yeah yeah but at Around that point, 12 wink wink yeah but lucius doesn't there's a 12 thing uh lucius doesn't have a personal relationship with harry at this point and it's not until the end, and it might also be a movieism in general, uh, you know, where Lucius at the end of it is ready to <laughs> cast a huge curse at Harry. Once Harry personally offends Lucius, I very much doubt that future complaints uh, by Draco would get that same kind of dispassionate, uh, you know, push aside kind of thing. Lucius would be right up there complaining with him. Mm-hmm. I was going to, you know, hearken back to a point I made a little bit earlier about how this book really does set up a lot of misdirects pretty early on. Um, so we can think about Percy as a first example. Um, and I would like to watch him throughout the rest of the book just to see, because I seem to recall that um, there were some theories at the time this book had come out about Percy maybe being up to something sketchy. We know he locks himself in his room all summer and his brothers are remarking how odd that is for him. Um, of course, we later find out it's because he has a girlfriend and he's trying to keep it quiet. Um, but then Harry also runs into Hagrid in Nocturne Alley. And when Hagrid's like, hey, you shouldn't be here. Harry's like, yeah, I gathered that. But wait, why are you here? <laughs> um, and then, of course, Hagrid is implicated in this story as well. As we get further into the book, we see Lucius Malfoy acting sketchy as heck, you know, so that's an obvious point. But what I love is just how many examples we're getting early on in the story of characters 
behaving a little oddly, doing things that might raise suspicion around them. I think it makes the story a really compelling read because there is so much misdirection. And I think throughout this book, we're going to notice multiple moments where we're like, oh my God, when I was reading this book originally, what did I think of this? Who did I think was behind opening the Chamber of Secrets? And I wanted to ask everyone here based on this point, do we remember when we first read this book, um, if we suspected any of these characters just based on some of these odd behaviors, some of these early misdirects? Yeah, I I think I was definitely led that way. And to your point, it adds some very interesting layers and you're thinking in the back of your head while you're reading the rest of the book, could Percy be involved here? Could Hagrid be involved here? You just don't know yet. It's really cool. It's just another good way to set up all the pieces uh, before knocking them down. Yeah, and I think it's really cool as well. You know, obviously... We learn that it's Ginny, but it's, you know, she's a proxy really for Tom Riddle. So it's not her fault. And I think that kind of sets us up as readers to think, okay, the Weasleys have been used as the device in this way already. Probably won't see that again. But in the next book, it's Ron's rat (laughs) that is ultimately um, the villain or one of the villains. never know. (laughs) Yeah. And Ron's right gets a shout out in these chapters, too. (laughs) Yeah, he does. So it is time to meet this year's DADA professor at his latest book signing. Micah, since this is our first uh, introduction to him, do you want to give us a couple of notes about him? Yeah. So all of this is from wizardingworld.com, potternomore.com. And I think we can certainly touch on a bunch of it maybe in another episode. But first piece that I know we've mentioned on the show before is that this is our second consecutive Defense Against the Dark Arts professor who is a Ravenclaw. Yeah. And a fake. And a fake. <laughs> a fake. <laughs> so our our antennae should already be up um, after what happened with Quirrell. But Probably the most interesting piece of information that I found on Wizarding World is that Lockhart might not have been keen to come to Hogwarts, uh, given how well his career of quote-unquote stolen glory was progressing, had Dumbledore not dangled the promise of Harry Potter (laughs) over his fame-hungry head. And that sounds very familiar to what Dumbledore does in Half-Blood Prince with Professor Slughorn. Wow. That's, that's cool. really neat. He's like, you know how to make your star rise even further, Gilderoy? Teaching Harry Potter himself. Yeah, good call out. And we can return to some of these other details from WizardingWorldPotterNoMore.com. Yeah, there's there's a lot of fun stuff in there about Gilderoy and his time at Hogwarts. Okay. Well, backing up a little bit, in their Hogwarts letters, the students are told they have to purchase seven, wink, wink, Lockhart books. Conflict of interest here, hello, for a teacher. They don't know at the time that Lockhart is going to be their teacher, but for a teacher to ask students to buy copies of his own expensive, by the way, books, this is perfectly in line with his egotistical character, of course, but this type of thing should be allowed at the school. It happens, well, in, it happens in college all the time. Exactly, yep. You ever take Boo. a class and you gotta buy the t- the professor's own book on the matter? Boo. Yeah. Kind of pretentious, kind of cool. At least with some books, you can get them secondhand, but the Lockhart books, just for some reason, I always have this picture of just them being so new 
that there aren't really secondhand copies where you can buy for cheap. One thing Meg brought up, we were reading these chapters together is, uh, couldn't they also share a set of seven books? Um, because no one, no one class is going to be on the same book at the same time. Right. So like Fred and George in year four, whatever, book, whatever year they're in five, I think at this point, um, you know, they're not going to be reading the same chapter or even the same book that Harry's class is or Ron's class is. It's an extravagant amount of money. Yeah, I was wondering that, too. I didn't know if Lockhart was just assigning the same seven books to every student or if he was assigning different books of his based on people's year in school. He doesn't strike me as someone who would be focused that much on, you know, the propriety at an academic level of people reading certain books. So maybe he is lazy and he just assigns everybody the same books. (laughs) Unlike college, though, the whole school has him as a teacher. That's a lot of money that is going into Gilderoy Lockhart's pocket, especially if every student has to get seven of his books. Yeah. We're talking serious money. Yeah. Huge capitalism right here. I think that Dumbledore cannot be blind to this. He absolutely knows that all these galleons are going into Lockhart's pocket in addition to the salary, whatever they're paying him to teach. This is kind of an early indicator how desperate Dumbledore is to secure a DADA teacher, though. I mean, if you think about it, it's been, what, 14 years since uh, the position has been cursed. So you have to take kind of this pathetic faker who only has stars in his eyes or only has, you know, his bottom line to consider as your teacher, because there's literally nobody else. Do you think it was that he was seeing it as killing two birds with one stone because he knew or at least suspected that Lockhart was a fake? And he thought this might be an opportunity to expose that because surely this guy wasn't going to be able to be an effective teacher as is evidenced in the book. That would be so such a crappy thing to do to the students though yeah but Dumbledore does crap like this all the time I will not (laughs) take more Dumbledore hate especially during the holiday season I can't take this anymore what do the holidays have to do when does he show up will we get to him before uh, the end of the year I think so I'm just waiting for him to lie again oh yeah (laughs) so so Molly says so like we're saying these books are very expensive Molly says we'll manage about uh in terms of affording these books, which, by the way, is one of my favorite lines to say at random times in my everyday <laughs> it's a life. Very, you do a very good <laughs> Julie Walters there. We'll manage. Yeah. Ask Pat how many times I say that a week in, in <laughs> Molly Weasley's voice. Um, because they need to buy five sets. That's a lot for the Weasleys. Though I'm wondering, you know, maybe Harry could have bought the books. Just maybe Molly wouldn't have accepted the 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 help. But... Harry could have just been like, hey, just as a favor for taking me in and for bailing me out of the Dursleys. I really appreciate that. Let me cover the books. I got plenty of galleons. It's no problem. So I thought I thought the same thing. And then I thought there's no way Molly is letting a 12 year old pay for her entire family's. I guess needs for school. I guess. Yeah, I, I think it's a great thought. And Harry certainly could do it. I mean, he buys Ron and Hermione ice cream later on, but <laughs> I just I can't see Molly being comfortable with a 12 year old buying school books and supplies for the thing her children. Is, what I'm not comfortable with is looking inside the Weasley's vault and it's a couple of sickles, maybe maybe no. one galleon, I think. Mm. And she scrapes it all in 
uh, little person. I mean, come on, Bill moves things from one vault to another. Like you got the inside track there. <laughs> I wasn't wow. even suggesting something untoward. I'm saying like maybe Lucius, maybe Lucius has a point about the ministry paying the Weasley, like paying their officers not enough because if they mm-hmm. have no savings like at all and have to spend what little they have left on these books, then then Lucius might have a point. The government really does need to pay Arthur more or overtime or something. I, I totally forgot about this scene too. Like, and we mentioned this earlier, like there's so much that happens in these books that doesn't make it to the screen. And this was one of the scenes I, I was like, I was reading it for the first time. I was like, they go to the Weasley's vault. Like I, I totally forgot. (laughs) Yeah, I love Eric that you brought up what Lucius says about Arthur not getting overtime or the implication he makes about the ministry not paying enough, because it really highlights the different motivations that Arthur and Lucius have for working at the ministry. The Malfoys are independently wealthy. I imagine they don't need to work if they don't want to. But Lucius chooses to work at the ministry because he wants to influence law and the government in his favor, whereas Arthur is working in the ministry. And typically, government jobs, you know, they're usually they don't pay a lot. Um, So oftentimes, people who choose to work in that space are working there because they want to improve the standard of living for everyone. They want to contribute in a meaningful way. So Arthur's there because he genuinely cares and believes in what he's doing. Malfoy's just there because he wants to grease the palms of the minister and other legal authorities to move the needle in his favor. At Lockhart's Magical Me book signing in Diagon Alley, Lockhart sees Harry and grabs him. They take a photo together and he uses the opportunity to announce that he'll be the DADA teacher at Hogwarts this year. Yeah, this is Going back to what I said earlier, this is kind of a slughorn-like moment, yeah. right? It's a collector-type moment. Oh, Harry's here. Let me get him up here, pose for a picture, give him his books free of charge. Absolutely. Yeah, why the Weasleys are like, uh, uh, how about us? We know Harry. We took him in. Harry did give his set to- Ginny. Yeah, Ginny. Okay. Yeah. At this event, Arthur and Lucius run into each other, and after Malfoy lobs an insult at Arthur about the company he keeps and- how he didn't think his family could sink any lower. Arthur lurches at Lucius and a fight breaks out. And Hagrid has to jump in and break up the fight in the bookstore. Man, I would have loved to have seen this in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I approve of violence, but it would have been an action-packed scene for sure. Kind of surprising to see Arthur act this way as well. I mean, picking a fight in a public space with Lucius, Lucius sucks, but still. Yeah. In front of his family, too, by the way. It's really interesting in seeing what gets him to that point, what gets Arthur to that point. But it just seems like Lucius knows exactly what to say the same way Draco knows exactly what to say. Just total vicious personal attacks. And we can see where Ron gets it from, right? I mean, in this same scene, Ron is about to launch himself at Draco. Um, (laughs) And the only reason he doesn't is because Harry and Hermione stop him from doing that. But it's, it's a double whammy here. I mean, you have Lucius just insulting the Weasley family, but also being a bigot, which we know the Weasleys aren't. Yeah, he's not just insulting the Weasleys. He's insulting the Grangers as well. And we see Mr. Weasley stand up 
um, for them in that moment. And I think, you know, that has to do with who he is, but also because of his job and and what he does on a day-to-day basis. And I don't know, maybe that says a little something too, knowing that those two families come together a little bit, you know, later on in the series with with Ron and Hermione. Yeah. Don't insult my future in-laws. How dare you? Real quick pivot here, but when they first see Draco, Ron straight up says him says to him, "Oh, it's you. Bet you're surprised to see Harry here, eh?" <laughs> and that's because of the whole Dobby plot. The whole thought that Draco sent Dobby to Harry as a a gag. And oh, Drake, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So Ron just straight up was like, "Bet you're surprised to see him here." And Draco doesn't really think about it. He just says, "Not as surprised as I am to see you in a shop." So that's kind of funny that Ron led with. I don't even know what that means. Yeah, I would, by the way, like to see the Lucius and Arthur scene adapted for television. I want the whole Harry Potter book series adapted for TV, and that would be a great scene to be included. So please max that. Max that. And of course, we have to mention this scene is, of course, where Lucius swaps the books. So pretty important thing to mention. In a bookstore. In a bookstore. Um... Well, a couple of odds and ends. In these two chapters, Ginny is fawning over Harry quite a bit. Draco calls Ginny Harry's girlfriend by the end. Help me out here. I think this is another Chamber of Secrets Half-Blood Prince parallel with Ginny and Harry making things official in book six. Yeah, I think okay. so. We also see Ginny um, really pining over Harry over the course of this book. And it's funny because they're kind of the roles are reversed a bit in book six where we see Harry um, coming to an awareness that he is super into Ginny. So from his perspective, we're able to see him pining over her as opposed to seeing her pining over him from his perspective in this book. Also, Hermione's parents are in Diagon Alley, which is nice. We don't really get any time with them, but it made me wonder, do we ever get Hermione's parents' names? Nope. I don't think so. That's so sad. They are doctors Granger and Granger DDS, and that is all we will ever know. Yeah. <laughs> we need to name them and get this into the Harry Potter wiki. More more misinformation by MuggleCast. Let's go. <laughs> we do get the names that Hermione gives them when she erases their memory in Deathly Hallows. Oh, right. Monica and... Was it? But I think Hermione would be smart enough not to give them the same first names as her parents. Let's go with Beth and Micah. <laughs> There is no Micah in the Harry Potter series. Right, there should be. There is now. Wendell and Monica Wilkins. Oh, that's their fake names. Okay. Yeah. So that's the chapter. Now it's time for MVP of the week. And I'm going to give it to Hagrid for breaking up that nasty fight between Arthur and Lucius. Hey, come on. Let's see this adapted somewhere. Somebody do a short film or something. I gotta see this. I'm going to give mine to the Ford Anglia because it, no, believe it or not, no, this I like is it. I like, like it. the only chapter where it doesn't break down or unexpectedly just falter. It performs its duties perfectly of getting Harry to the burrow. I'm sensing a theme here. Um, I'm going to give mine to Arthur. He is the most stand up person in Aww. these chapters. His motives are pure. Although he likes to explore, um, you know, other areas of his own interests that are maybe a little bit, you know, ambiguous when it comes to what's legal, he's still doing what's right at the end of the day. 
And um, I think, you know, it's not a great example to fight in front of your kids. But I think the most important thing for them to carry forward is that he was not letting his family be insulted. And he wasn't letting bigotry slide by without pushing back. Well, I'm going to take the other side of that fight for MVP <laughs> of the week, Lucius Malfoy. Uh, number one, I mean, for just doing some spring cleaning and making sure that his house is uh, well kept, uh, but also for uh, getting the plot in motion by dropping that diary into Ginny Weasley's cauldron. Wow. Okay. Going to call you a Slytherin. I mean, we wouldn't have a book to read otherwise. True. Right. Next week on MuggleCast, chapters five and six of Chamber of Secrets, so get reading those chapters now. Coming up on bonus MuggleCast this week, exclusively available for patrons, we're going to check in with the Wizarding World expansion at Universal Orlando's Epic Universe theme park. This is a third theme park they're building, a third Wizarding World lands. This one seems to be Ministry of Magic theme, and there's already a jaw-dropping number of details about the big ride that's going to be in this land. Wait till you hear these details. I cannot believe we already have so many details. And I can't believe we missed this when these details came out a month or two ago. We're going to go through it. Lots to gossip about. That'll be available at patreon.com slash MuggleCast this week. We do a monthly bonus MuggleCast installment. And you can look forward to a higher frequency of bonus MuggleCast installments next year on our Patreon. More details in the weeks ahead. If you have any feedback about today's episode or next week's chapters, send an owl to mugglecast at gmail.com, or you can use the contact form on mugglecast.com. You can also send the voice message. Just record it using the voice memo app on your phone and then email us that file. Or you can use our phone number, which is 19203Muggle. That's 19203684453. We love receiving your feedback, everybody, so thank you in advance. And now it's time for some quizage. Last week's question, in Chapter 3 of Book 2, what is the last of Harry's possessions to leave Privet Drive? Going to shout out Diplomat Snail and Draco Malfoy apologist for asking whether Hedwig counts as a possession. For these purposes, yes. Yes, she does. I didn't know how else to be vague and say it. But the correct answer is Hedwig. And correct answers were submitted by Artemis Fido Jr. the second, Babbity Rabbity's Cackling Stump, Bad Wolf at Hogwarts, Buff Daddy, Chicken and Quaffles, Coco the Cutest Puppy, Elizabeth K, Emily, Forrest the Ten-Year-Old, Gobble Schlopper, and Bowfungus, Granger Brains, Hayden B, Hermione plus T equals Happiness, Leah Mandrica, Moody's Pegleg, Rachel M, Ravenclaw from Waxhaw, Rock Cake Baker, Sir King of Kings, and Wild Witch of Yorkshire. Okay, next week's question. What was Mrs. Hetty Bayliss? A muggle doing when she saw a flying car in the sky above London. Submit your answer to Quizich via the Quizich form on the MuggleCast website or visit MuggleCast.com slash Quizich. Okay, I think we're all set on this week's episode. So thank you, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.